Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. I'm pleased today. It's good. I, hello. We're okay. Um, as I've been preparing this week and praying about what to bring this morning, um, you know, you sort of think, you think God's put something on your heart, but you're never quite sure. And then when you come to church and all of the kind of worship and all the messages that are given through the service just confirm to you that what you've been given is right. That's, that's what's happened this morning. There's been a constant theme um, through the worship today. I don't know if you've, you've picked up on it, but a theme about the greatness of God and who he is and what he's done for us and our desire to chase after him and to make him our highest priority. So I'm pleased that God is at work already um, and that maybe what I've got to say fits in some small way. So that's great. Um, this morning is the uh, 9th of December, in case you weren't aware. It means we only have 16 more sleeps until Christmas Day. I know, I know. I'm sure your preparations for the big day are well underway by now, unless you're one of those super last-minute sorts, the Christmas Eve shopper. Um, we have in our household various ways in which we like to prepare ourselves um, for Christmas. For example, uh, last week I reversed Santa'd my kids' bedrooms. So if you're not a parent or familiar with reverse Santering, um, essentially what you do is you, you wait till your kids are soundly asleep and then you creep into their bedroom with a sack and then you pick up all the toys off the floor, put it in the sack and take it to a charity shop. And then you make them thank you for tidying their rooms. It's, it's magical. It's magical. Another way we like to prepare is we have to eat through an entire freezer drawer in order to make enough room to fit the turkey in. So that's meals with lots of loose nuggets, half fish fingers and peas. So many peas that have escaped through the year uh, that we have to get through. Of course we decorate the house. We decorate the house. We decorate the tree. We let the kids hang things on the tree for us and then when they're in bed, we rehang everything that they put on the tree. Our OCD won't quite let us live with a tree that's only decorated on the bottom third. I think that's the, um, that's the problem there. We buy presents for family and friends, and we get overly emotionally invested in cheesy Christmas movies, and then we eat things that we shouldn't. It sort of feels like I'm getting ready to hibernate through the winter, um, the amount of stuff that I've, I've been putting away the last few weeks. But one of the questions that's been bothering me over the past few weeks is, am I preparing for Christmas in the right way? By which I mean, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, am I preparing for Christmas in the right way? Because as a committed follower of Jesus, Christmas is all about the arrival of Jesus. One of the names we like to use for Jesus at this time of year is Emmanuel which means God with us. Christmas, we're preparing to celebrate the arrival of God in our midst. And really, that should be something that is mind-blowing, something amazing. And so it got me thinking, how would, how would God want his, his creation, his beloved children, to prepare for the arrival of his son, Jesus? And so I did, I did some digging. I read the Christmas story in, in Matthew, I read the Christmas story in Luke, and then 
And then I read the Christmas story in Mark. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning, the Christmas story according to Mark. So if you've got your Bibles with you um, or your apps to hand, if you could find the Gospel of Mark, that would be great. It's the second book in the New Testament. And I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 1, this morning. This is how it begins. He says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news. We all know the story, don't we? We know what's coming. There's an angel, a shocked mother, a trek to Bethlehem, a birth in a barn. There's some shepherds who hear singing. There's some wise men who follow a star and then give some wholly inappropriate gifts to a baby feared by a king. We know the story. Except that Mark seems to have forgotten all of that. All of it. Because the very next thing he says is not... Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. He reminds his readers of a prophetic word given by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years previously about somebody, not Jesus, somebody else who would prepare the way for the Lord. And then in verse 4, he tells us who it is. He says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's the whole Christmas story in Mark. The next thing that happens is Jesus shows up fully grown and is baptised by John in the River Jordan and gets on with saving the world. Mark, what happened, buddy? Matthew speaks about Mary and Joseph and the Magi. Luke explores the stable and the shepherds and even throws in a couple of songs for good measure. But Mark doesn't even mention a donkey. Come on. You know, he starts by saying it's the the good news about Jesus, but then he immediately starts talking about John, John the Baptist. I mean, what do we even know about this guy, John the Baptist? Well, from reading the other Gospels, we know that he was born before Jesus. We know he was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were way past childbearing age. They were really, really old. Um, We know that Elizabeth was in some way related to Mary, and that Zechariah was a priest. In fact, we read in Luke that while Zechariah was burning incense in the temple, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. That's the same angel that visited Mary and told that his son John, who he was given a name before he was born, um, would be set apart for a very specific purpose. We read in Luke 1 that he will bring back many people to Israel, many people of Israel, to their Lord, their God. 
and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, that was another famous prophet, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I guess it's starting to feel a little bit more Christmassy. We've got an angel now, at least. We've got a miraculous um, birth. We've got a, a mission given by God to prepare people, prepare people for the arrival of Jesus. And as I've said already, as Christians, that's what we do in the lead up to Christmas. We prepare to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. But why is it that people in John's day needed preparing? Well, the people needed preparing because they were unable to see what it is that was right in front of them. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read this. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And later, the Apostle Paul would reflect that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that is displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People needed preparing because they did not recognize Jesus. They did not recognize who he was or what it is that he came to do. He came in under the radar, born in squalor. He grew up in obscurity, not as a prince or a king, but as the son of a carpenter. And the people had no clue that God was among them. Now, to me, this sounds very similar to the way in which the world around us celebrates Christmas. Christmas has become a celebration of Christ coming into the world that fails to notice Christ came into the world. We have Santa, we have trees, we have decorations, mince pies, we have presents, we have booze, we have Brussels sprouts, but no Jesus. It sort of hurts your eyes, doesn't it, to, to look at I wonder if Mark was actually on to something here in the way that he begins his gospel. And I wonder if sometimes as Christians we're guilty of the same thing. We make our preparations for the big day as it were, but we don't make any time to prepare our hearts to be with Jesus. Mark says at the beginning of his gospel, this is the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. And then he immediately says, prepare, prepare a way for the Lord. So I think that's what we need to do. That's what we need to look at this morning. So how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves? What do we learn from John? After all, this was his job. This was his mission given to him by God to prepare people to meet with Jesus. So there's just three things I want to talk to you about this morning that I think we can learn from John. The first thing Mark tells us about him is this. He said he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, to us in our 21st century Christian upbringing, baptism is either that thing that we do with babies over the font or it's that big splashy thing that we do on a Sunday morning where we dunk someone after they tell us that they love Jesus. We're doing one in the new year as well, so if you're interested, speak to us. Um, But it's a symbolic thing, right? It indicates... Um, that the person being baptised has died to that old way of living and is being raised to life again. It's an 
It's an outward sign of an inward reality. However, in Jewish culture in the first century, it was a little bit different. Baptism for them was all about um, ritual purification. If you had done something that would make you unclean and therefore unsuitable, unfit for God's purposes, you were expected to immerse yourself in naturally sourced water as a way of purifying yourself, washing away um, the defilement, if you like. For example, um, baptism was required for anyone who would convert to Judaism because um, Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, were considered unclean. And so you would need to be baptised before you could participate in Jewish life. We, as you know, we only baptise people once. But in Jewish culture, the baptism could be repeated as often as was needed. And essentially, it had to do with changing your status before God. You were unclean, unfit for God's purposes. Therefore, you needed to be made clean again. And you did that by being baptised. The pools. Um, actually that they built for that purpose. They had steps going down into the pool one way and then steps coming back out the other. So you could walk in unclean and walk out cleansed again. Sort of like a drive-through baptism of its day. And so if John is preaching a baptism, the first thing he's telling his listeners is that they are in their present state unclean and unfit for God's purposes. He's telling them that their status before God needs to change. He tells them why they're unclean as well. He said you need a baptism of repentance. Repentance is about recognising that we've gone the wrong way and then resolving to do something about it. This idea of making a straight path for the Lord that Mark talks about in verse 3 captures the sense of it. We need a reorientation, a straight path that takes us where we need to go. The word in our Bible that's translated as repent in the Greek is the word metanoia. Metanoia, and it refers to a transformative change of heart, a baptism to change your heart. Something had gone wrong in their hearts that meant they needed to be washed clean. Now Mark tells us that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and were baptised in the Jordan River, which I think is kind of amazing considering the message he was preaching. He was essentially telling people they were unclean, that they needed to change the way that they were living. And it was um, offensive. In fact, I think it still is offensive. The message we hear loud and clear today is that you can live however you want. You can do whatever you want. As long as you're not hurting anyone, what does it matter? You make sure that your wants, your desires are fulfilled above all else. Put yourself first. But John, he cuts across all of that. He says, if you want to meet with Jesus, the first thing that you need to do is recognise that you are not okay without him. There are things in your life that you need to turn away from in order to be able to turn to Jesus. Things that should not be there. The word he uses is sin. And sin is living in a way that's contrary to God's plan and purpose for our lives. It's not just the the big things like adultery or murder, but it's the, it's the little stuff too when we lie and cheat and we're selfish and hard-nosed or jealous or irrationally angry when we harbour ill feeling towards others in our heart. And again, much like repentance, it's not a word that we're tremendously comfortable with today. We prefer to excuse our behaviour, to deny ownership. Oh, it's not my fault. Everyone does it. 
ah, it's, just the, it's just the way I was raised. I, I've got a condition, whatever that might be. But John is saying, if you want to meet with Jesus, there needs to be some ownership of your behavior. There needs to be a recognition that a change needs to be made. Um, 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that every time we mess up we need to go and find a river to have a wash in. We don't need re-baptizing because we're made clean by the cross of Christ, not by running water. Those days are done. That's why we've celebrated communion this morning to remind us of that sacrifice. But one of the things we might need to do as we prepare for Christmas is to check our heart. Have we allowed things to creep in that shouldn't be there? You know, and as much as we might clean our homes to be ready for the big day, we also need sometimes to clean our hearts and our lives? Have we allowed ourselves to wander off course, to become distracted and lose focus? Is our life a straight path towards the plans and purposes of God or is it more like Spaghetti Junction? We're not really sure what lane we need to continue on our journey. Have we allowed certain sin into our lives and found a way to justify keeping it there? You know, the truth is that God has already forgiven us of that sin. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished, it's done. Repentance is simply about recognizing the things that shouldn't be there and choosing again to turn away from them, to make a straight path back towards Jesus. Because, you know, when we turn away from something, it's important that we turn to something else. Which brings me on to the second thing that I think we can learn from John this morning. John knew that Jesus was worth pursuing. He knew he was worth turning to. We read in verse 7 this. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. It's almost a rhyme, isn't it? The picture that we have of Jesus very often is that of an innocent little baby laying in some hay, innocuous, harmless. But this isn't the image that John spoke about, or the image that Mark chooses for the start of his gospel. In John's day, rabbis taught that a teacher might require just about anything from their students except the taking off of sandals or shoes. That was considered a step too far. For example, in the Talmud, which is Jewish writings on the Torah, it said, all services which a slave does for a master, a pupil should do for his teacher with the exception of undoing his shoes. And so undoing the shoes was reserved for slaves and it was reserved for servants, the lowest of the low. But John says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. In other words, I'm not even worthy to consider myself enough to be called his slave or his servant. Now this isn't false humility on John's part. This is simply a recognition, a revelation, if you like, of who it is that Jesus really is. If I could turn to John's Gospel for a few minutes, because much like Mark, he prefers a different Christmas story. This is how John starts his Gospel. This is a different John to John the Baptist, by the way, just if you're getting confused. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John is talking about Jesus. Firstly, as God, he says he was with God and he was God. And secondly, as the author of creation. He says all things, all things were made through him. That means he made It means he made planet Earth, our home, this big blue planet that we live on with a radius of 6,371 kilometers. It's 71% water and 29% land and it's the only astronomical object we've discovered that is able to sustain life and what life there is. Presently, scientists estimate there's approximately 8.7 million species on Earth. Between one and two million of those are animals. Having said that, scientists also think that around 86% of all land species and 91% of all sea species are yet to be discovered. How bonkers is that? We've only explored something like 5% of the ocean floor. As humans, we number currently somewhere like 7.5 billion, but we're outnumbered by chickens. There's over 18 billion chickens. <laughs> if there's ever a chicken uprising, we're in trouble. <laughs> Scientists estimate the total insect population at 10 quintillion. That's 10 billion billion. There is a lot of life on planet Earth. And he's the author of life. But of course, we're not the only planet, are we? We're one of eight planets in our solar system and one of an estimated 100 billion planets in our galaxy that we've called the Milky Way, after the chocolate bar, I assume. (laughs) Our galaxy contains anywhere between 100 and 400 billion stars. And scientists think that our galaxy gives birth to around seven new stars a year. How amazing is that? And our galaxy is full of the most incredible things. Around 10,000 light years from Earth, there's a massive cloud of alcohol just floating in space. (laughs) Enough for around 400 trillion trillion pints of beer. God knows how to throw a party. (laughs) There's also a massive diamond. It's called BPM 37093. And it's 25,000 miles long. That's bigger than Earth. And it weighs quite a lot. Around 10 billion, trillion, trillion carats. It would make a serious engagement ring. I also read last week there's a planet called Gillespie 436b. I've learned scientists aren't good at naming things. Um, The planet's made entirely of burning ice. Burning ice. The gravity keeps the water from evaporating and the temperature is over 400 degrees Celsius. How mad is that? It's just sitting out there. It's part of creation. And of course, our galaxy is just one of an estimated 10 billion galaxies that exist in our universe. Currently, scientists think the observable universe is around 93 billion light years in diameter and contains something like a billion trillion stars. It's thought there are many stars in the sky as there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the planet. And John writes that all things were made through him. It's mind blowing awe-inspiring stuff. I love the lyrics to the song, uh, So Will I, that we sang a a few weeks back. 
It says, God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point in reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapour of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you made. Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. And so when John says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie, he wasn't kidding. No duh. He's simply giving Jesus his rightful place. So what does it mean for us as we prepare for Christmas? Does it mean that that our nativity should be bigger than our Christmas tree? Well, no, because that stuff doesn't really matter. Our decorations aren't important. Although I should say thank you to Brian for setting up our lovely nativity um, this morning. Um, But what matters is that we put Jesus first in our life that we make him our highest priority, that we remind ourselves of who it is that we serve. We serve the author of creation, the one who flung the stars into space and the one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a sermon and being made in human likeness. He found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As we read in Philippians over the summer. John recognised Jesus for who he truly was. Do we do the same? Or do we reduce him in our mind to such an extent that he becomes easy to ignore? One of the reasons we worship, and I'm so glad we, we sung the songs we did at the start of the service, is because it reminds us of who it is that we are serving a great God. Who not only created all that we see, but knows the number of hairs on our head, it says in Luke 12, verse 7. He is worth pursuing at Christmas and for the rest of our lives. Jesus isn't for life, not just for Christmas. And so we look at ourselves, we check our own heart, we turn and we recognise him for who he truly is. But the third thing, the third thing I want to finish on this morning, um, at the start of Mark, verse 8, that John says is this. He says, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John knew that his preparations were only the beginning He recognised that the baptism he was offering was only a temporary thing. It was a demonstration of repentance, but not a lasting work. We read in Luke that one of the things Gabriel told Zechariah was that John himself would be full of the Holy Spirit. That's how he was able to prepare people to meet with Jesus. That's, I think, where his revelation of God came from. And through the Old Testament, we see God's Spirit resting on certain people at certain times. People like Joshua and Gideon and Saul in 1 Samuel 10.10. Speaking of Gideon, it says, when um, they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. And then the Spirit of the God came upon him and he prophesied amongst them. But the Spirit always comes to help a person achieve God's purposes, a task that he's given them, and it doesn't always remain. For example, 1 Samuel 16.14 says, but the Spirit of the Lord departed. It left. But Jesus was about to begin something new, something exciting. He was about to change the game forever. When his ministry began, he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
And then he set about showing the world what that looked like. He loved people. He healed them. He forgave them of their sin. He brought glory to God on earth. And he revealed his Father's heart for his creation. And then as he was getting ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross, to die in our place, to make a way for us to return to God, he turns to his disciples and he makes them this promise. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. He's talking about God's Holy Spirit, God's very presence living within us, abiding with us forever. And it's exactly what happened. You read in Acts 1, just before he returned, he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. You've heard me speak about it, for John baptised with water, but in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, the disciples were overwhelmed. They became bold and fearless. Peter stood before the gathered crowd and he quoted the prophet Joel. He said, in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. your visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on them and they will prophesy. And then he encouraged them. He said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, whom the Lord God will call. God's Spirit is no longer for the chosen few, but for all who are willing to turn to him. That means as we repent, it means as we give God his rightful place in our hearts and minds, we can be assured of his continued presence in our lives. Or to put it another way, God's not done with us yet. There is more that he wants to do in your life through his spirit. There is more that he wants to teach you, more that he wants to show you. There is a greater work that he has for you here and now. He's not finished with you yet. He wants to continue to work in your life so that you become more like his son. So you are prepared for the day that you meet him face to face. The Apostle Paul says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You belong to him. And nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And he gives you his spirit as a guarantee. Not the Christmas spirit, but the Holy Spirit to prepare you for the life that he has called you to. And so there we have it. The Christmas story according to Mark. Perhaps not the most traditional Christmas story, but certainly one worth considering, I think, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to meet with Jesus. I wonder if the band would um, come and join me on stage. We're going to sing together this morning um, that song, So Will I, that I mentioned. Although really we could sing any of the songs that we started with this morning, couldn't we? There are a lot of words in this song. It's a very wordy song. It's very very beautiful words, but I know it can be a hard song to sing along with. Um, But each section of the song finishes with the declaration, So Will I. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. A declaration of our intention to make him our highest priority. To turn away from the things that have perhaps distracted us from God and to chase after him. To chase after him with our whole heart this morning as we prepare ourselves to meet with him. Not just at Christmas, but for the rest of our lives. I wonder if you'd stand with me.